0: Great if you could have the passage we read from earlier, John chapter 20 and verses 1 through 18, open in front of you. I want you to entertain this hypothetical scenario with me for just a moment. So you go home from church today, you open your front door, or your hotel room, or wherever you're staying, and you discover an envelope has been posted through the door whilst you've been here. And so you pick it up, and as you're going to open it and, and pull out the letter, you, you notice that this letter is really official. It bears all the hallmarks of our really important letter. First class stamps, stamp of it, the, the company in the front of it, the paper feels... Expensive, and, and as you pull out the letter and you quickly scan its contents, you discover the jaw-dropping, heart-stopping news that a long-lost relative of yours has died and left you their estate worth millions of pounds. What would your reaction be? I imagine... That because of the large number of scams that there are that up today, you would be tempted to doubt the genuineness and the authenticity of this letter. So you would no doubt fire up your laptop, do a little Google search. <laughs> Has anyone else had a letter like this one? You'd type in the name of the company. You would look at the letter again. You would, you would check out the signature. It's an it's in ink. You would want to look into this. This is just far too big a deal for you not to give it some serious attention. Well, here's the thing. The message of Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, is far too big a deal for us not to give it some serious attention this morning. In fact, I want to contend that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead offers us more than an inheritance worth millions and millions of pounds. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead offers us what money cannot buy. New life, new identity, new hope, new family, new standing with God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is life-changing, world-changing. And so as we begin this morning, I want to challenge each one of us, especially if you're here and you're you're not yet a Christian, to come. Come and examine the evidence. Come, Let's look at John's narrative here in John chapter 23. Let's see the the, the genuineness, the authenticity of of his narrative. Come, examine the evidence of the empty tomb. Come, encounter someone who had a meeting with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at this chapter and these verses before us in two sections, verses one through 10, examining the evidence of the empty tomb. And then verses 11 through 18, encountering the risen Lord Jesus at the empty tomb. So let's examine the evidence of the empty tomb. Verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. If we're going to appreciate this narrative of the first Easter Sunday, we need to appreciate who Mary Magdalene was. Do you remember who she was? The first time we meet Mary Magdalene in the Gospel records is in Luke chapter 8 and verse 2. And what we discover about Mary Magdalene is that she was a woman with a troubled past. She was a woman who had a past that was filled with torment. Because in Luke chapter 8 verse 2 we read that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. And because Jesus changed her, healed her, in Luke chapter 8 verse 3 we read, Mary Magdalene became a devoted disciple of Jesus. In fact, out of her means, Hard and a few other women supported the ministry of Jesus. And you know, during the days of Jesus' ministry, she was one of the most prominent women among the women who followed Jesus. You know, Jesus' disciples, one of them betrayed him, one of them denied him three times, and all of them fled from him and abandoned him. But Mary Magdalene she was there at the foot of the cross on Good Friday as Jesus breathed his last she was there when they placed Jesus' body into the tomb and here she is early on that Easter Sunday morning while it was still dark coming to see Jesus coming no doubt to see his dead body. Isn't it interesting? Good Friday ends in darkness. Easter Sunday morning begins while it's still dark. Little hint. We're going to discover that Mary was in the dark, as it were, about what had happened to Jesus. Now we're told in verse 1 that Mary came to the tomb and she saw You see that word saw there if you take notes You could circle it We're going to see this word again and again in this passage she saw what she, she saw that stone Had been taken away from the tomb in other words Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and the stone that had sealed it This huge stone had been moved Meaning she could see into the tomb We're not told this explicitly but it's implied she saw there was no body. And so she turned on her heels and she bolted to the home of John. He's called the other disciple, the disciple who Jesus loved. He's the author of this gospel. And there in John's home is Peter. And Mary Magdalene, picture her, right? She's in a state of panic. She's in a state of alarm. How do we know that? Verse 2. So she ran. So picture her scurrying through the streets early that Sunday morning to get to John's house. Arrives breathless and exclaims, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. It's interesting. John in his account, only presents in the opening verse, Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb that morning. All the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, present not just Mary Magdalene, she's mentioned them all, but other women coming with her to the tomb. So is there a contradiction? No. Look at what she said. Read it carefully. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we... Who's the we? I and the other woman. We don't know where they have put him. There's no contradiction whatsoever. She was there with others. But the question I want to focus is, focus, the word I want to focus on is not on the we, but on the they. Notice that she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Question, who does the they refer to? In the first century it was common for grave robbers, tomb raiders, to come and steal the contents of what might be found in a grave or in a tomb. Now remember, Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. And so so, 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 so is the they referring to grave robbers who came or tomb raiders and raided the tomb? And took Jesus' body away. Or is it they referring to the Roman soldiers who crucified the Lord Jesus? He died the death of a criminal. He didn't deserve to be buried in a rich man's tomb. He deserved to be buried like every other criminal in a mass grave. The sort of graves we're reading about and hearing about in Ukraine. Multiple people. Thrown into a mass grave or was does the they refer to the disciples some of the disciples they have come and they have taken his body and they don't know where they have put him listen we don't know who the they refer to but you know what we do know when Mary came to that tomb that first Easter Sunday morning she did not come Expecting to see Jesus alive. She came expecting to find his dead body. When she examined the evidence, her conclusion was, his body's been taken. Perhaps foul play. Perhaps genuine love, and they've taken them, and she just doesn't know where they've laid him. Back in 2010, at the Edinburgh Book Festival, there was a debate. Between the leader, or one of the leading figures in the New Atheist Movement, the late Christopher Hitchens, and a leading Christian apologist, Professor John Lennox, Professor of Mathematics uh, at, at the Oxford University. And in the debate, John Lennox rested his case on the resurrection from Jesus Christ from the dead. And so in the concluding speech, John Humphreys, who was moderating the debate, said to Christopher Hitchens, you've got five minutes to respond to John Lennox. And like that, Christopher Hitchens barked back and said, I won't need five minutes to disprove someone who believes in the resurrection. And do you know what his simple case was, this? Dead people do not come back from the dead. They die, they do not come back. It's Utterly ridiculous, preposterous, to take someone seriously who thinks dead people die and then come back to life. You know what's interesting? Mary had the same worldview. She didn't come that morning expecting to find Jesus alive. Dead people die, they don't come back to life. Jesus had said it many times to his disciples, many times to his followers, he was going to die and be raised, but it went in one ear and out the other ear. So so look what happens. She she, she exclaims this news to Peter and John, and then they run to the empty tomb. There's a whole lot of running in this passage. Now, look at this. Verse 4. Both of them were running, but the other disciple, John the author, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, I love this. John says, I smoked Peter in the race to the empty tomb. How human. This is macho man writing, you know. <laughs> we ran to the early tomb. I never forgot it. I beat Peter. This little detail reminds us this is an eyewitness account. This little detail reminds us of the genuineness and the authenticity. It's not of Now look at verse 5. John arrives in the scene, stooping to look in. He saw you could circle it if you wanted, the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So Peter, so John comes, he surveys the scene, he looks at the evidence. There's no body. There's linen cloths. Then look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter came, following him. Now, that's just another little insult. Following him, way behind. And went into the tomb. Now, if you know Peter, anything about him, this fits his personality, doesn't it? Peter's never one to stand back. Peter's always the bold one. Peter's always the one who takes the lead. Peter's always the one who's confident. So picture it. He arrives at the empty tomb after his early morning race, huffing and puffing. And with his characteristic hastiness, he enters straight into the tomb. And we read these words, Peter saw. Now stop there. All through the passage, we've read Mary saw, John saw. But see when it says here, Peter saw, it's a different word. In the Greek, there's two words for saw, blepo and theori. It's been blepo, 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 but here, it's theori. Now that's where we get our English word theory or theorize. So Peter comes and he, he, he looks with intent at the strips of linen lying there as well as a cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. And this is what's happening. There's a whole lot of been running going on. Now Peter's mind is racing, furious with thoughts, He he he's like a police detective looking at evidence at a crime scene. He's theorising. What's going on here? Right. It cannot be grave robbers who came and took the body of Jesus. Cannot be. Because they left the most expensive thing. The corpse is worthless. The linen cloths, which would have been just soaking with spices and ointment, they left them. If you want to sell something at the market, it's the linen. So this is grave robbers. It can't be Roman soldiers. They would never waste time. They would take the body. There's no way they would unwrap the linen and take off his face cloth and fold it up and leave it at the side. And it cannot be the disciples. Because there's no way they would desecrate the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no way they would take off the strips of linen. There is no way they would stomach the stench of a decaying corpse. You know, sometimes you look at a person and it's like you can see the, the wheels of their mind turning. If we looked at Peter, he was standing there pondering what has happened. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, verse 12, Luke says, Peter went away from the empty tomb wondering to himself what had happened. Consistent account. But look at verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first, just so you don't forget, <laughs> I got there before Peter, I just loved John and his humility, also went inside. Now, now, look what it says. He saw and believed. Question, believed what? What did he believe? Did he believe what Mary had said? Some people have come and have taken the Lord's body. Is that what he believed? Or is it he believed after he examined the evidence that Jesus had risen from the dead? What do you think? Some people say it must be he believed what Mary said. Because of verse 9. Look at what verse 9 says. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. But I don't believe that is the right interpretation here. Because the whole context is about the resurrection. The object of the belief, I'm convinced, is the resurrection. And let me tell you why I think that. Two reasons. Because every time the word belief appears in John's gospel, it's about genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's actually the purpose of this gospel. That you may believe in Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in him, we have life. And, and you might say, but how do you square that with verse 9? Well, verse 9 carefully. What does John admit to? What is he saying? He's saying, for as yet, we did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. What John's saying here, right, is... I looked to the evidence, I saw and I believe Jesus has arisen, but it wasn't because of what the Old Testament Scripture said. John's not proud. John's been really humble here. He's actually saying something that's so embarrassing. He's a devoted disciple of Jesus. He's a student of the Scriptures, and guess what? He did not join the dots. He didn't understand from the Scriptures that Jesus must rise. He didn't know. We just sang Psalm 16. He didn't know that God had said his Holy One will not see decay. John is saying here the embarrassing truth, it wasn't the scriptures that led him to believe in the resurrection. It was because he examined the evidence of the empty tomb. Many people in the secular West think that Christians believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead because we exercise blind faith. We come to church and we leave our brains at the door. False. Anyone who's a Christian He's a Christian because they've engaged their brain. They've examined the evidence. They've found it to be compelling. That's why I'm a Christian in part. It's a really, really amazing story of a guy called Lee Strobel. He was a journalist. His wife became a Christian. He was an atheist. He wanted to disprove Christianity. So he used his investigative skills to try and disprove Christianity. And as he was doing so, he became convinced for the case of for Christ. If you're a skeptic, you should read the book. If you're a skeptic, you should examine the evidence. Now you might say, but hold on a minute, I can't do what John did. I can't go to an empty tomb and see the strips of linen. But guess what you can do? You can do something John didn't see, didn't get. You can examine the scriptures. Hundreds of years before Jesus came into this world, it was prophesied, he must rise from the dead, and he did. And if you're a skeptic, you've got to answer that. The scriptures are a perfect witness and testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why do I think John's not proud and he's been humble? Because Jesus goes on and says in the next passage to Thomas, blessed are those. Who have not seen and believe. John saw and believed. He's saying, I didn't attain to the blessing. I had to see. Now, this little first point ends with verse 10. And see, so many people read verse 10 as just the end of this and they move on, but let me just show you its significance. Jesus said, John says in verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. Do you know what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 32? The hour is going to come when you guys, 12 disciples, are going to scatter to your own homes. Jesus' prophetic statement fulfilled right there, right then. They went back, they scattered to their own homes. Peter wondering, uncertain, John believing. Now, we come to verses 11 through 18. The encounter of the risen Lord Jesus at the empty tomb. So picture the scene, John and Peter leave, Mary, I don't know if she was in the running race back to the tomb, but maybe she came slowly, maybe she was so out of breath on that first run that she said, I'll leave the guys to it. But when she arrives at the tomb, what do we read? She was standing there weeping. It's really fascinating, we begin Easter Sunday, and and there's a real as Christians, we come with filled with exuberant joy and celebration. Easter Sunday, the first one began in darkness... And with tears. Picture Mary standing at this empty tomb. And she is bawling her eyes out. She is sobbing. She is in complete confusion. Where is the body of Jesus? Now. We then read. She. As she wept. She stooped to look into the tomb. Now if you're reading this. You're thinking she's now going to examine the evidence. But you know what? She gets more than she bargained for. But remember, I've said Mary's in the dark. Look at verse 12. She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now, this is the one little bit that anytime someone in the Gospels meets an angel, do you know what happens? They jump out their skin and they're terrified and we read the angel having to say to them, do not be afraid. Mary doesn't. At least we're not told that. Maybe the reason was because through the tears, she wasn't seeing properly. She saw two figures in white. She saw where they were seated, but she didn't realize that those who were seated in front of her were angels. But after the fact, when she told John about what happened, it was so clear it was two angels. Now, side point, what she had in front of her, what she saw, I cannot tell you how significant it is if you're a diligent student of the Bible. One angel at the head of Jesus, one angel at where the feet of Jesus had been. Two angels. Exodus chapter 25, God says to his people, I want you to make the Ark of the Covenant, this ornate box made of gold, on the lid of the box, mercy seat. Two angels either side. The high priest will take the blood on the day of atonement, sprinkle the blood. What is this communicating? What is the symbolism? What is the significance? Mary was seeing that Jesus had made satisfaction for sin on Good Friday for his people. But she didn't see it. We see it now as we study it. Mary misses it. Then you get the pastorally sensitive question to Mary. Woman, why are you weeping? Now, we've looked at the word weeping. It's a term of endearment, affection. Why are you weeping? Now, you might say, that's an odd question. Is that really pastorally sensitive? That seems pastorally insensitive. She's in a graveyard. (laughs) She's lost the one she loves. Why are you weeping? Well, the reason she's weeping is because she's in the dark. She doesn't get it. She thinks somebody's taken the body of Jesus away. And And this is the second time she says this. She said it to Peter. Now she says it to the angels. Again, Mary doesn't entertain the thought that Jesus might be raised from the dead. Now, this is what I love. If you were trying to write an account to invent the resurrection, one of the things you would definitely not do is make your main character in the narrative filled with doubt and unbelief. (laughs) I ain't going to persuade anybody. You're trying to make up a story. You're trying to convince convince them of the (laughs) astonishing fact of the resurrection from Jesus. Christ, and you're saying that she didn't even believe in it she didn't expect it after Jesus had said it this has got a ring of authenticity now notice what happens next John says John says verse 14 having said this she turned now again in our studies thus far in John's gospel just two t- chapters we know that word turned it's significant she turned around and saw Jesus standing that's what's significant but look at what John says but she didn't know that it was Jesus so ironic the one she's looking for standing right in front of her but she doesn't see him and Jesus said to her "Woman, why are you weeping here's the question again heaven wants Mary to know tears are not the right response Tears are not the right response. Her tears are needless. Her anxiety unnecessary. Death has been defeated. Jesus is alive. It, she shouldn't be weeping. She should be rejoicing, but she doesn't see it. She's in the dark. Now I love verse 15. And if you get eyes to see and ears to hear, listen. Supposing him to be the gardener. Hmm. She said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll, ta- and I'll take him away. Don't rush over this. Do you know where Jesus was buried? Do you know where the tomb was? John 19, verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Jesus was buried in a garden. John has got so many parallels with Genesis. Genesis opens with a garden. Who's in the garden? The first Adam. Eve. Who's Jesus? Who does Paul say Jesus is? He's the last Adam, the second Adam, the true Adam. Why was Adam, the first Adam, placed in the garden? To work and till it. To be a gardener. What did the first Adam do? God says, the good God, the generous God says, this is all of yours. Enjoy it, name it, be fruitful, multiply. One thing do not do. Do not eat from the tree of the Knowledge of good and evil. What did the first Adam do? What did humanity's representative, the covenant head, do? He ate the forbidden fruit. What did it do? It brought death into the world. It meant every single person has ever lived is born a sinner. It brought s- misery and curse. This is what's beautiful. Mary looks at Jesus and she supposes he's a gardener. shes It's like she sees more than she knows. It's not surprising he looks like a gardener. He's a second Adam. Here we are in a garden. And what's Jesus just done? This is beautiful. He's defeated death. Eat of this tree and you'll surely die. Jesus comes, defeats death, with his death, conquers the grave. He is risen. What did Adam, the first Adam, do? He brought sin into the world. What does Jesus do? The covenant head for his people. He's the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. What did the first Adam do? He sinned and brought misery and curse, thorns and thistles, the sweat of the brow. What is Jesus coming to do as the second Adam? He comes to reverse the curse. Here he sees, more than she realizes. Jesus is the second Adam. Do you see it? And do you know what that means? If you trust him, if you believe in Him, all that He has done is for you. Life. Forgiveness. The reverse of the curse. Now, I love what happens next. Verse 16, it changes everything. Jesus said to her, Mary, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, Jesus can preach a perfect sermon in one word. Bet you wish I could. <laughs> Long sermon. No, no. Jesus, one word. Mary. Her eyes were opened. Something about, was it the way he said it? Not sure. Mary. It struck a chord deep down. She was not seeing, but then she was seeing. She saw with new eyes. Remember what Jesus said in John 10 verse 3? I am the good shepherd. I call my sheep by my name. This meeting is beautiful. This encounter between Mary and the risen Jesus is, in, is incredible because it captures the story of the Bible. Mary would have never found Jesus unless he came and found her. And you know when Jesus calls his people by their name, comes with the power of the Holy Spirit, it dispels the darkness, It lifts the veil, blind eyes see. This is personal, this is profound, this is powerful. By the way, through God's word, God is speaking to all of us today. He's calling you to come and turn away from the empty tomb. Okay, examine the evidence, but now come and encounter the living Lord Jesus Christ. Look at, look, Mary did exactly that, verse 17, she turned remember, turned significant what always follows a turning is something we do not expect and what do we not expect Mary said to Jesus in Aramaic the whole conversation up until now has been in Greek the lingua franca of the day, the common language and now Mary speaks in her mother tongue the language of intimacy the language of person the, the, the deep personal intimacy Rabboni my teacher I said right Christians aren't people who leave their brain at their door. They're people who engage their brain. But listen, it's more than that. Christianity is one of the most compelling, intellectual, rational realities you can ever study, examine. But it also requires that you have real, experiential, heartfelt engagement. The thing about faith, it's not less than believing with your mind, but it includes your heart. She speaks in our mother tongue. I." See, see Christianity, do you know what it's about? It's about a real relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. A life altering, life transforming, life redefining relationship. And just so you know that I'm not just making that up and it sounds good, look at verse 17. Jesus said to Mary, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. It it, it seems that between verse 16 and 17, Mary grabs a hold of Jesus, the one she's been looking for, the one that she was thinking she'd find his dead body. She grabs a hold of him and she won't let him go. And Jesus says to her, no social, Jesus says to her, do not hold me. Now, just so we can be clear, this is not Jesus advocating for social distancing. This is Jesus saying, listen, my is I've said it to my disciples time and time again. After I rise, I will ascend the Father. And it's better for you guys because I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit from the right hand of the Father. And just so you know, Jesus, Jesus doesn't mind people touching him physically because this was a bodily, physical resurrection. In the next passage, Jesus will say to Thomas, put your finger in my nail-pierced hands. Put your hand into my side. This was a physical, bodily resurrection. Now, now, if you've been reading this story, right, do you know what the most astounding fact is? This is the thing that blows my mind. Out of all the people that Jesus could have chosen to first appear to, post-resurrection, who did he choose? A woman with a troubled and tormented past. Now, I don't mean this in a, in a blasphemous way. If I'm put myself in Jesus' sandals in, in the sense of who should I appear to after my resurrection, like, a good candidate might be Pilate. A good candidate might be the Roman soldiers. The Jewish leaders. Okay, twelve disciples. No. Mary Magdalene. A woman who was once a social outcast. A woman who was once tormented, troubled. He chose her. Why? Because that's Jesus. That's love. That's grace. Love that people don't deserve. Now, what Mary says to her in this post-resurrection encounter is, Mary, I've got a mission for you. Now, this is astonishing and astounding. He says to her, you're going to go tell the brothers. Now, that's fascinating Peter's denied them. The disciples have fled and abandoned them. They're no longer his disciples. They're now his brothers. They're his family. The greatest benefit, blessing to come out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, don't miss it, it's the adoption of us into the family of God. Go tell my brothers. Just want me to tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. In other words, Jesus says, you now have the same relationship with God, my father, as I have it. He's my father and your father. He's my God and he's your God because you're my brother and you're my sister. That's what Easter Sunday offers. There's nothing more incredible than that. By the way, money can't buy a new family. It can't. Resurrection gives us a new family. Now, a new identity, a new life, a new hope. Now, Verse eighteen Mary Magdalene Wenkles with the news and I just love this. Saw, 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 saw. What's her testimony? I have seen the Lord. I've looked at him. I've encountered him. I have met the risen bodily. Jesus Christ. She was the first messenger of the good news of the resurrection. Do you know how genuine and authentic this must be? In the first century, woman's testimony would be disregarded from a court of law. Do you know, if you were going to write a pro- if you were going to try, right, and make, invent the story of the resurrection, you would never ever include that the most prominent character was a woman. Because it wouldn't persuade many Jews. It would be like an embarrassing detail that you would want to Hide. It's an inconvenient detail. But you know one of the most beautiful things about Jesus? Is how revolutionary in counterculture he is about women. Mary is significant to him during his earthly ministry. Mary is significant to him now as he prepares to ascend to heaven. She's the one who's to bear the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from. What an incredible saviour. We have. Now here's a really sad thing for you guys to hear. You're not going to go home today, I don't think, and find a letter through your door <laughs> telling you you've got a pittance worth millions of pounds because of light, a family relative has passed away. But you know what I do know? This morning, as we've unpacked the meaning of Easter, you've been given an offer that money cannot buy. You've been offered a new life, a new identity, a new hope, a new family. With someone who will love you regardless of your past, who will change your future, who's got a plan and a purpose to use you. You know what the resurrection means? Because Jesus has been raised, we will be raised. You know what the resurrection means? The same power that raised him now lives in us. Do you know what the resurrection means? We've got a sure and certain hope. And do you know who tells us this? Mary Magdalene. I've seen the Lord. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. God, the resurrection of your son from the dead takes our breath away because it was done for us who would believe. And we are humbled that you invite us to believe and to receive what money could never buy us. We thank you for the meaning of the resurrection. We pray that this morning as we leave from here and as we go into this week, we would live in the power and in the life and in the new identity we have. Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called children of God. God, as we go from here, we go as your family of faith, brothers and sisters, who have seen the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Thank you for dispelling the darkness. Thank you for lifting the veil. Thank you for showing us Him. And it's in His precious and powerful name we pray this. Amen. We're gonna.